Are you going to Gen Con? Guess what? Jeff Greiner, Rudy Basso, and I will be there. If you want to see us, we're going to be doing a live roundtable at 5 p.m. the Friday of Gen Con. That's 5 p.m. on Friday, August 5th in the Crown Plaza in Grand Central Ballroom D. We're going to be joined by fan-favorite panelists Liz Tice, Dan Dillon, and Sean Merwin. It's totally free, so get your tickets now. After the panel... Join us at Rock Bottom Brewery in downtown Indianapolis near the convention center at 7 p.m. for drinks, food, and games. Then I've got a movie I wrote, directed, and produced with my partner Jay Lechko that's premiering at Gen Con. Nightbirds, a six-minute-long short film that's a superhero comedy, is part of the superhero block of short films at 7 p.m. on Saturday, August 6th at Gen Con. That's totally free, so check it out and support my movie Nightbirds with a K. Also on Saturday, I'm moderating a panel called The Digital Future of D&D 5th Edition. The panelists include people from Drive Through RPG, people from Sirenscape, people from Mesa Mundi, people from Smiteworks, and people from Lone Wolf Development. That's going to be at 2 p.m. the Saturday of Gen Con in the Crown Plaza Grand Central Ballroom C. All right, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the D&D Roundtable on the Tome Show Podcast Network. I'm your host, James Intercasso. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the show. If you've been here before, do me a favor. Go give us a great rating on iTunes. It helps us a bunch. If you take 30 seconds, you will be providing a great service to us and helping new people find the podcast. I read one new five-star rating verbatim each episode and credit the person who left it. Make me say anything you want, but keep it clean, people. This is a family D&D news podcast. Here are the words of Kent Taylor with a review entitled, Excellent Podcast. Kent Taylor says, This is now my favorite podcast for news and information mainly on D&D, but also all things role-playing with a bit of fantasy thrown in. I love how they can get interviews with industry greats, Mike Merles, Wolfgang Bauer, Monty Cook, etc. The roundtable discussions are always thought-provoking and offer new perspectives for me. I live in Japan and can't usually get a D&D fix, but this is about the closest thing. Looking forward to their Gen Con report where they always tape some of the seminars and provide audio for those who can attend. Well, Kent Taylor, we are happy to provide for you. Thank you so much for this lovely five-star review. I hope that you do find a D&D group out there in Japan, and I'm glad that we're giving you the fix that you need. Uh, thank you so much for this review. People out there, we could use your reviews, so please head on over to iTunes and drop us a five-star rating, and you could wind up like Kent. Please use the affiliate links on tomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. You just go to the tomeshow.com, click on the banner in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would on either of those sites. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, noblenight.com, where out of print is available again. They have D&D and other tabletop RPGs. Any edition, any product. With Noble Knight, you can even sell your old gaming products you aren't using anymore. My product pick from Noble Knight for this episode is The Gamers Live, Indianapolis 2012. Inspired by the cult classic films The Gamers and The Gamers' Dorkiness Rising, this live performance from August 2012 features the cast of Dorkiness Rising in an uproarious and unforgettable comedy improv event. You can get it right now for $8.95 at noblenight.com. That's less than 10 bucks to have an awesome time. And if you haven't checked out The Gamers' films, 
check out those as well. They're pretty much an awesome, awesome, low-budge good time. You can get a direct link to The Gamers Live Indianapolis 2012 in the show notes for this episode at thetomeshow.com. It'll take you right over to noblenight.com. Let's hear a word from them. Support for The Tome Show comes from Noble Knight. From Noble Knight. Noble Knight? Knight. Knight? Thousands of tabletop gamers use a Noble Knight to sell new and out-of-print games and products at a discounted price. Noble Knight will also buy back the game products you aren't using anymore. NobleKnight.com, the brick-and-mortar online store where out-of-print is available again. Tell them the Tome Show sent you. I use Noble Knight. You do? I love it. It's trying to sound creepy, though. Okay, everybody, today we're talking about the current D&D actual play series, Dice Camera Action, Force Gray, Giant Hunters, and Acquisitions Incorporated, the series. Then it's an interview with game designer Chris Harris about his rune magic chapter of Deep Magic for 5th edition from Cobalt Press. Let's meet our panel and kick things off with our get-to-know-you question. Who is your favorite D&D character from any live play podcast or stream or video? Uh, and we will start with the one and only Liz Tice. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. I wasn't expecting to go first. My goodness. <laughs> um, so let's be clear, James. You also said at the end of that question, and why is it Merle from the Adventure Zone um, as a way to get us all prepped? Um, and <laughs> to be honest, I really just got into the Adventure Zone recently. I was way behind. I know. I know. Um, but I, my answer is a little off little different it's not really a character uh mm. but i really really love uh griffin as the dm in the adventure zone <laughs> um he he has inspired so much fun stuff in my games um and it's just because I, i'm dm re dming recently it's it's great to get and steal fantastic tidbits from from that show it keeps things fun and interesting and i know it's not a character but it's my answer so yeah uh, i i totally appreciate that i think one of my favorite actual play podcasts is the adventure zone which is why i so i sent that and yeah i steal liberally from them they have great characters great puzzles great uh you know set piece action scenes um so yeah i i would definitely steal liberally from griffin uh as well <laughs> uh so yeah it's uh we're not reviewing that one today because we're sticking to sort of official watsy properties uh yeah. but for this question it can be anything any any actual play anywhere and uh if you're not listening to the adventure zone you definitely listen be. yes absolutely uh, Dave Gibson is back with us. Dave, welcome back. Uh, who is your favorite character from any actual play property? I thought long and hard on it. And there's, it's a really kind of a, who's my favorite today? And I'd still have to go with uh, Grog Strongjaw from The Critical Role. Mm. Just, oh, yeah. Damn if I can remember the actor's name off the top of my head right now. But it's just masterfully played. And uh, it's always fun to see someone play stupid. It's, it's yes. very easy to play smart and charming and try to excel at everything. And it's just so much fun to watch and also play someone who's just doing the wrong thing. And you know it's the wrong thing and just willingly embrace the failure. And that's always <laughs> just a joy to watch. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, critical role, right? It's it's the gold standard for for actual play for sure. And and Grog is hilarious to watch. So I totally agree. And speaking of critical role, with us is James Hake. Uh, James, welcome back to the roundtable. Uh, Adventure Zone is one of those podcasts that I've always wanted to watch or, or listen to. I've got a lot of friends who are always telling me, um, but I'm going to have to go with. Uh, another critical role character, uh, Vaxil Dan, uh, Liam O'Brien's character, just because I think of all of the actual play player characters I've ever seen, whether it be the ones we're talking about today or in critical role, his is the most realized as a character. I think he he plays the the wrong idea often in the same way that that Grog does, but he's he's always driven by these very real passions. Uh, always something that I'd like to see in a role-playing game. Yeah, I think they do a great job across the board with uh, with character creation, but I think you're absolutely right. So, And Critical Role, again, we're not uh, reviewing that one today, but, uh, but I'm, if you have not seen Critical Role, it is worth all of the hundreds of hours of your life you would put in to go back and watch it from the beginning at this point and, uh, and do so. Uh, so definitely check that out. And new... To the round table. Very excited. It is long overdue to have this gentleman on this podcast uh, is Chris Sneezak. Chris, welcome to the round table. Before we get to your answer about the get to know you question, tell the people out there a little bit about who you are in the world of tabletop role playing games. Uh, sure. I play second fiddle to James Intercasso in pretty much everything. That's pretty much where that goes. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> At no, all. Um, I am, I'm honored and uh, and grateful to be here, James. Thank you for inviting me. I am the person behind Misdirected Mark Productions. We do uh, we have a network of podcasts. Uh, the Down with D&D is the one that people who like D&D would be interested in. Me and Sean Merwin, the marvelous Mad Wizard Merwin. Uh, he is my co-host there. I also run Misdirected Mark podcast, which was nominated for Nanny this year, which is pretty exciting. We talk about gaming, game mastering, and we entertain people. And then there's uh, Talking Games. It's our short form podcast where we compare one shots and campaigns with Phil and Senda. And then there's other shows. There's a, oh my God, uh, Wayne's going to be so mad at me because I forgot the name of the show <laughs> off the top of my head, but it's another D&D show. That's just two guys sitting around talking about the, the visionary Insight, comms. Right? Yeah. Advantage to Insight. Thank yes, you. Yeah, yeah. Man brain slip uh they, <laughs> two guys talking about D that, that show is very new three episodes in so uh that, that's what i do and threats from gallifrey that's a show about savage worlds and other games like that the one ring uh doctor who role-playing game i also write and am one of the partners in encoded designs a game design company we design D stuff fate stuff well pretty much whatever we feel like uh, right mm-hmm. now we have a page around for character cash we do a lot of the bulbing games behind the scenes stuff for the D&D Adventures League that's the for the program that they got going on now and I also write for the any nominated gnomes too so there's that too <laughs> yes yeah so he does a lot of stuff uh <laughs> and it is an honor uh sir to have you on and uh, congratulations are certainly due to you uh, you recently got married i don't know how you had the time uh to do all of the things you do and also get married and you also have like another full-time job isn't that right yeah, I, that that job is my I make money job to, so I can pay my bills and do all the other stuff. I'm just a custodian. You know, I clean up after kids. It's cool. Yeah, but it's, but, you know. Well, that's a good, that's a good chunk of your time, I would imagine. It's true. It's true. So I don't sleep a lot. That's kind of how I do that. <laughs> uh so let me ask you, Mr. Sneezak, who is your favorite character from any actual play property? So this is weird because I don't listen any actual play property? Any. 
anything. Oh, cool. So there's a podcast called The Knights of the Night. That is a friend of mine named Tom Flanagan runs that. And it's not – they, they have played D&D, but they mostly play World of Darkness in the Dresden Files role-playing game. And there's a character on there named London Deals, and he is a pompous jackass fae who brokers deals between everybody. But uh, that show has been going on for so long now. He's had a bit of a character arc, and now he has a daughter in there. And he's become – gone from being a jackass to being – a much kinder, nicer human being, or not human being because he's not a human, but it's a, it's fun to watch that transition happen. And he is by far my favorite character in all of actual play because I don't listen to a lot of D and D actual play shows. I do listen to some, but uh, not as many as I listen to other games. Like I'm, you, somebody mentioned that Critical Role is the standard for uh, actual play. I think that the One Shot Network is, which isn't even my favorite actual play. It's the She's a Super Geek. So, oh sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one shot is is definitely up there. You know, I think people uh, we could certainly uh, God's Fall. I think uh, does very well for itself as well. So um, there's a lot of really really great things uh, to to go along uh, in the actual play world. And it seems like there is a new one we have to check out almost uh, every week. You know, Dan Harmon put out Harmon Quest, uh, which is available on CISO. Uh, you know, you can uh, see him play. Uh, Pathfinder alongside a bunch of comedians and things like that. Uh, we'll probably be talking about that a little bit later on uh, on another roundtable. But for now, we are sticking to the big three that Wizards is currently putting out. Dice Camera Action, wherein Chris Perkins takes a bunch of people who are popular video game streamers. So that is a, that's a live stream, and he takes them through the Curse of Strahd on Twitch. Uh, and then the episodes are posted to YouTube later. Uh, and then uh, a collaboration with Nerdist, uh, Matt Mercer, who is the DM for Critical Role. Geek and Sundry, which puts out Critical Role, and Nerdist are uh sister companies. They're both owned by Lionsgate, so it makes sense that Nerdist is working hand-in-hand with Wizards to put this out. There's a lot of other uh, named comedians on there. Chris Hardwick, Jonah Ray, uh, people you might recognize from the Nerdist, uh, all that kind of stuff. So there's uh, that's Force Grey Giant Hunters, and then there's Acquisitions Inc. the series, uh, which brings together all of the people behind Acquisitions Incorporated, which is the Penny Arcade D&D podcast, and it is a continuation of that, again, DM'd by Chris Perkins. I want to kick it off by talking about Dice Camera Action because that one has been running the longest. I think they're like 15 episodes in at this point. That is run, uh, if you've never seen a D&D live stream, it comes on Tuesday nights. Um, they play for about two hours through Curse of Strahd. Uh, you can kind of follow along where they are. There's four people. There's the occasional special guest. Chris Perkins is running them all through it. It's really interesting to watch him run an adventure that he has written. Uh, and I could go on and on. Uh, I watched a, a lot of them in the beginning, uh, and I have stuck with it and continued to watch them. Uh, but why don't we hear from our panel about dice camera action? What did you all think? Liz Tice, let's start with you. So, uh, I, I'm not one of those people that usually likes to watch or listen to actual plays that aren't like edited. <laughs> um, so <laughs> this was the this was actually the one that um, I, I I got a little bored to mm-hmm. be honest um, as I was uh, watching it. And if it wasn't because I care about this podcast and you, James, <laughs> I probably would have shut it down. Um, it, it, I mean the 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 people 
people playing were all lovely people and Mm -hmm. they had some interesting characters, but there wasn't enough to really draw me in personally. Um, I, I understand why they can't edit it down. You know, it's hard to edit something that uh, has video alongside it that isn't, you know, set up sort of to be more um, like a TV show or entertainment, like I think we saw with uh, Force Gray or like you see with Critical Role. But I just, I couldn't connect. Um, and I think part of it was just the the format. And mm-hmm. um, I, that, it's a really boring answer, but that's that's <laughs> one that I, I really couldn't get into. Um, and the other one, I one of the other ones I couldn't get into, but for a completely different reason. And I'll get to that. Oh, sure, for sure. But I think I actually think that that is a a great point. And I think that's one reason people have a hard time getting into actual play sometimes because watching other people play D&D can be pretty boring. Uh, you know, it, 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 as opposed to if you're the person playing in that game, right? Like if you were right. there playing alongside level. them. Yeah. yeah, there's a little, there's a much different level of engagement, right? Mm-hmm. Because you are invested in your character if you're a player or you're invested in the story or or the, the game as a whole if you're a DM. And it's, it, it's so very different. And for me, I mean, I like to watch... Um, I like to watch actual play, but the kind that is a little bit more stylized, um, like a critical role or Titan's Grave or what have you. And I get nuggets out of that um, to keep in mind as a player, as a GM. Uh, but I just I really wasn't able to get that from this one. Sure. And I think you're also seeing, you know, you're seeing people learn the system uh, in in dice camera action and you are. You know, the nice thing is like, what's on the cutting room floor with Acquisitions Inc. and with Force Gray? You know, those are tight half hour episodes that are easy to swallow. It's hard for every, you know, every week to fit two hours into your schedule to watch something. You know, you're you're talking about a movie every week you're committing to watching. So I certainly uh, understand that. Uh, I have a a good time. I think as it's gone along, uh, that series has gotten better and better. Uh, Full disclosure, I... DM'd that group of people for uh, an online convention for Roll Twenty Con. Very um, cool. So, uh, so I, if I didn't have to do that, I probably would not have stuck with it. Uh, but I think now that they have gotten into the later episodes, it's like, okay, they really know what they're doing. Everything moves along faster. Chris Perkins seems less nervous than he did at the beginning. Um, you know, uh, but I also don't know if I'm just so committed at this point that I'm like, I got to finish this because I've, I've got, you know, 28 hours in this thing now. So uh, <laughs> I think I think you're right. I definitely would not have stuck with it were it not for that at the beginning. But I think if you do, you do get rewarded as you go further along. Uh, but Dave Gibson, what did you think of Dice Camera Action? I agree that it took a, a while to so really hit its stride, which you could say about most campaigns because the, the, the players are getting used to their characters and learning who who they are, as well as learning how to play off of other characters, the other other people at the table. And it definitely takes a little bit for the, the career of the dice camera action to really know how to interact with each other and kind of play off before uh, uh, before the evil end starts, you know, crushing on, I was it, Paulton, which comes a little bit later. But mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's a will-they-won't-they they romance in there, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's, it takes a little while for stuff like that to really gel. Mm-hmm. Um, D- uh, Dice Cap, and also the Curse of Strahd is such a slow boil initially. There's a lot of mist. There's a lot of you know, kind of mystery. There's not a lot of initial action 
mm-hmm. which if you were playing another game, you'd have something to kind of move things along, like a random encounter, some little like random fights, bandits on the road, something to break up the the investigation a little bit. I think that's really lacking in that particular adventure. What what is great is uh was it Evelyn and Strix mm-hmm. just came out fully formed. Those characters are just excellent to watch. Yeah, the, yeah. Um, the the ladies I think are really the stars of that series. Yes, they sure. they they nail it with their their various uh their portrayals. They really feel like they've got a character. And I was I, I hadn't heard of Commander Holly. I can't remember her last name. I think, but I had not familiar with her at all. But she came in there and she came up right out with the the Planescape sigil, the slang, the mm-hmm. the, the cant, and that she just nailed that as well, which really kind of helped cement that character. So yeah, I found that yeah, really entertaining. Yeah, very familiar, obviously, with the Planescape property, right? So, which is really cool. Uh, James Hake, what did you think of Dice Camera action? Dice Camera, I think we've all sort of been talking about it. It didn't really grab us at mm-hmm. first. And I wanted to touch on something David talked about. Um, yeah, all of the characters at the beginning really, or even all of the players, all the actors, had to figure out who they were, what their role was. And that show really showcases how, unlike a a movie or something with a scripted narrative, the characters' arcs haven't been prepared. They're feeling it out. Mm -hmm. And shows like, you know, we're not talking about them, but shows like Critical Role and a podcast I listened to, a fourth edition one called Thursday Nights, they'd been playing off-camera their game for years before the show began. And it shows in Critical Role. All the characters know each other. They have those relationships built. And thus, it it makes for a tighter starting episode. Um, it's It's less of a I remember when I started watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's like, oh, no, don't don't worry. It will get better after season one. Or it, any any show where someone has to say, keep watching, it will get better. It's it's definitely got that feel to it. And sure. ultimately, I think, like with a lot of people here, Dice Camera is the one I'd, uh, I've watched the least of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, that is a great point. I forgot that, you know, they, they start with Critical Role. Like, they've been playing together for a couple of years already at that point, right? When the campaign begins uh, live streaming and everything like that. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that is a good point. Uh, Chris Sneezak, uh, what did you think of Dice Camera Action? I would look look at this a little bit more from the the technical side. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of an audio I'm an audio snob. I like oh. good audio. Oh yeah. Yeah, and <laughs> the the first episode of this, the audio was pretty pretty poor in Horrendous. my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and I I will give that a chance though. Like I'm like okay, they're feeling this out. Um. So I uh, after the first one, I went and I started listening to later episodes to see if they improved the audio, and uh, it got better. But there's still some. In, actually, in episodes eight, and then I listened to ten, and then I listened to thirteen. It still got problems. Like they could spend a few bucks and get Chris Perkins a better microphone. That would be nice. <laughs> I would appreciate that. And and Commander Holly could use a better microphone too. Um, Anna uh, Posser Robinson, she has a very nice microphone. The rest of them actually have really good good gear. I mean, mm-hmm. they're all YouTubers and streamers and stuff. So I I was expecting uh, a higher level of of audio quality. I also don't compare like. I wasn't sure if we were going to be like comparing and contrasting it because this is so different from the other two shows. But there are um, there's a show out there called Roleplay, and Roleplay is like the uh, the one of the more famous ones is Swan Song. That's Adam Kobel uh, running Stars Without Number for for those people over there. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to that, you can hear what good audio sounds like in a live stream. So I, I'm a little disappointed in Dice Camera Action because 
I mean, if they're going to try to put their best foot forward, they should try to get the best quality audio because, yeah, it's they're just playing a game which uh, gets better over time as people get to know each other. But uh, content is good. The audio quality is poor. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's that's a really good point, because this one is out of all of them in my mind. It's like the most direct sell of a product in the sense that they're running one of the wizard's adventures, right? And they got the guy who wrote it to run it for them. Uh, and you would think that they would want to sort of put their best foot forward in that sense, that you would want to be able to hear everything clearly and, and make sense of it. Uh, Dave Gibson. It's and running off the audio quality. It's also the one with the least video production values. Mm-hmm. It's the one that could just be an audio podcast the easiest because they occasionally have little pictures of some of the characters or maps. But for the most part, you can listen to this entirely on the audio, which is how I, I mostly end up consuming Dice Out Camera Action, as opposed to Acquisitions Incorporated or uh, Force Gray, where there is actually a bit more editing and visual presentation and they have some sort of overlays of the dice. Uh-huh. So you'd think the audio would be a much higher standard that they want to make that a little bit better for that reason, and yet they don't. So it's unfortunate. Yeah, that's true. I actually don't understand why they didn't uh, take this, turn it into an audio podcast too, edit it up a little bit, and then release it on the the Dragon Talk stream on the D and D podcast yes. stream, and that that would have been a much better. That would be another quality use of this mm-hmm. product for people to get into. I think. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, that is a mystery to me. Uh, the same way we cannot get PDFs of the uh, core rule books. Um, <laughs> this is this is also a mystery to me because I would much rather consume a lot of these uh, as podcasts, you know, because then I could listen to them in the car or while I'm working out, or you know, um, it's a lot harder to to do that when they're on YouTube. Uh, James. On the topic of converting to podcasts, um, basically everyone I know says uh, when I tell them to listen to Critical Role, uh, they say, oh, I'd love to listen to it were it a podcast. Um, <laughs> and as as someone who is uh, at Geek and Sundry right now who works tightly with the Critical Role team, I can say we all want to, mm-hmm. um, but our post team is so hammered with other things there's so much stuff in the pipeline that I don't think they can spare the people to get a podcast up. Um, and I volunteered a couple of times. They say, no, no, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> so, uh, don't hold your breath for critical role, the podcast. <laughs> hey, for those of you who do want to listen as much as I like to say, Abert, uh, go to YouTube and get the hits up. There are quite a number of um, websites out there where you can just download YouTube videos. Mm-hmm such as uh, keepvid.com, which is what I actually used to download these these videos so I could listen to them again on my um, on my iPod on the go. Yeah. So there, there are options if you want to just listen. Yeah, they yeah. Exist. And they'll even, they'll directly rip an MP3 if you want. Uh, there, gotcha. there are definitely sites. Uh, but, you know, it, obviously people want to, want to watch on the on ways that can be monetized to help support the property i think is always uh uh, you know a a good thing to do um but yeah you can definitely uh let it play in the background of your computer to to, for it to get the hit and then go ahead and download that mp3 and take it with you um so to actually listen to it uh is, is a great great way 
to do that. Uh, well, I think, you know, I think we've hit on dice camera action, uh, pretty well. I want to move on to talking about, uh, Acquisitions Inc. and to talking about Force Gray. These two are more alike. Um, they're not live streamed. They are pre-recorded. Uh, everybody is together in the same room playing D&D. It looks like these were all shot maybe on the same day, uh, you know, or, or over the course of uh, two days, maybe, or something like that. Um, so, and then divided into these half-hour episodes. Uh, everybody in both of them seems like they're really, really having a good time. Why don't we start with Acquisitions, Inc., uh, since that's probably the most familiar property, uh, because that's the Penny Arcade guys playing with Chris Perkins, uh, having a great time. Uh, it is a continued story. So we had a conversation about this before the podcast, this is a continued story that they started, oh, back when 4th edition first arrived. Um, so you kind of need to understand the continuity a little bit. They have a video in the beginning of their first episode that is a, a big joke about what they did before. Uh, so it's not going to make uh, any sense if you try to actually apply what's in there to the other thing. That's just a big joke. Uh, that being said, a lot of people uh, already are familiar with Acquisitions Incorporated and and the characters and their adventures and that sort of thing. Uh, we are going to talk about that a little bit. Liz Tice, I want to start with you again because <laughs> you and I already had a little bit of an exchange on Twitter uh, uh, about this. Uh, so I sort of know where your head is at with this one. Um, so what did you think of Acquisitions Incorporated? And what was your familiarity with the product, uh, with the um, property as well? All right. Uh, yeah. So I I've heard of Acquisitions um, Inc. and and know sort of the history behind it, um, but I never actually had a chance to listen to the podcast or watch any of the shows from PAX. So I came in blind. Um, I didn't have any context whatsoever, and so I was super confused when I started watching it because I, I just didn't understand who the characters were or or the story, and so they sort of just dump you in it, which really wasn't great as a first-time watcher, especially since it was presented as episode one. But what really bothered me um, was all of the childish humor going on, um, and, and the specifically all the sort of sex jokes. Um, and I am, I am not their target audience, because I assume <laughs> their target audience is uh, men, to be perfectly honest. And, sure. I, you know, I was sort of ranting to my husband and, and sort of relaying some of some of the jokes that were going on. And he's, of course, cracking up. And I'm like, all right. So yeah, proving my point. <laughs> um, I, I am not their target audience. But that sort of bothered me at a level I really couldn't communicate or really understand and i think it's just you know playing into those those tropes of you know dnd is the boys club right where you have a storyline where you're getting information by sleeping with a woman it just bothered me so much and i know a lot of people love this show that's great um i i definitely you know wouldn't be secretly judging my husband if you watch the show or anything like that <laughs> um but it's definitely not for me and it's disappointing to to sort of see that there's this show that might you know not only not bring women in but might actively turn them against the hobby sure sure and i think it's safe to say that the 
Penny Arcade gentlemen are uh, have had their fair share of uh, being incendiary uh, in some respects. Uh, people can certainly Google that if they, they want to figure out what all those controversies and stuff were about. But, um, I, you know, I find that the show for me is funniest when uh, when they leave the sex realm and they're just kind of making dumb jokes uh, within the game, like within character, uh, kind of like the Adventure Zone. You know what I mean? Like some of the yeah. best jokes yeah. are the real silly kind of jokes that come out. And there's a, a lot of that going on as well. But yeah, I think you're right that uh, there's a fair amount of, uh, you know, uh, shall we say more immature <laughs> uh <laughs> male centered humor uh in the show well um, and and to go on to that a little bit more because i think some people might say well there was you know innuendos on force gray and all of that um i i appreciated the fact that even though there were you know sexual innuendos in that show they sort of like put it out there let go and then moved on mm-hmm. whereas i felt like they were sort of going over and over and just continuing to joke about stuff and that's that's where the immaturity sort of uh got to be too much for me um and honestly i think i was sort of keeping track of when i got most frustrated and again if i hadn't been doing this for you james um it would have been off after five minutes gotcha yeah yeah well the, the certainly the opening of the first episode uh you know involves one character speaking to his sort of girlfriend uh and so i think that uh that quickly brought it into the realm of sex and uh you know i think i could see why that would definitely turn somebody off especially if they're not familiar with the rest of the series and they're just like hey what's D about uh, you know <laughs> uh, that that could definitely be a problem and for my money uh, i certainly don't mind a sex joke uh as long as it is original and good um you know what i mean like like that's uh, I, and that's a realm that has been trod many, many times, and that's where I think Force Gray, when they make a sex joke, uh, it's more original and it's a little more clever. Um, you know, this just felt like that at times they go for the easiest laugh, uh, and you know, that's. I mean, I understand you're playing D and D, you're on the spot. It's it's hard to do, and you feel a pressure to entertain. But uh, but yeah, I do. I appreciate more uh, more clever humor. When it comes to sex, but we got you. So, Chris, uh, what did you think of Acquisitions Inc.? I'm actually with Liz uh, on most of it, mm-hmm. for the most part. Uh, I actually thought the content was kind of boring. I mean, I would give it a B minus, a C plus. Like, uh, it's too bad too because they dropped the rod of seven parts in there. They have a lock that mm-hmm. they have to break. Mm-hmm. It's, it's they're, they're trying to run a heist. Right, but right. The problem is, is like D and D doesn't handle heist really well, and I'm kind of sad because Perkins, I thought, would have figured out a way to run a heist really well, and he seems to just be letting them mull about, which is rather upsetting to mm-hmm. me. It's like that, that's that's unfortunate because there's some cool ideas in this. Uh, the the bagpipe lock, I thought that was neat. <laughs> the the vault that's there. I mean, they could have cut that. They could have cut to that part of the story in. 10 minutes instead of the 25 minutes they took to get there. So that was depressing in a lot of ways. Like the information distribution didn't flow very well. I also made a, uh, a huge mistake in watching force gray first. Cause that show is great. We'll get to that in a second, <laughs> but uh, this one does not live up to that. And it's really kind of sad to me. I'm a little depressed about it because more people should watch force gray. Uh, mm-hmm. I did the numbers on these shows. 
because sure. I wanted to see how they decayed because they're like TV shows to me. Uh, like this one starts off at 225,000 views right now on YouTube, and by episode five, it's at 80,000. Like Force Gray is, does, is at like 160, and then it dropped to like 70 after the first wow. episode. Uh, Dice Camera Action is actually worse. It started at 130 and dropped down to 13,000 by episode 13. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's just the format, though. But yeah, like that's that's pretty much how I feel about this. Like, it's too bad because the story is really good, and the people that are playing the game aren't being able to pull it off as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, and I I think these guys, you know, they really seem to thrive too when they have a live audience. Like when you watch the live shows, they they get fuel from that, right? Especially Perkins really seems to be encouraged by the audience, and uh, and I think you know it it, it they they maybe would have benefited from having a audience's guiding hand in this case um so yeah and and there's a reason i say force gray uh because you know i want to talk about the best last uh at least in in my mind um so but uh dave uh you were the one who originally suggested we compare and contrast uh these two acquisitions inc the series and force gray uh, what did you think of acquisitions inc the series i think it definitely benefits from the live audience and the time constraint because mm-hmm. they they tend to be very simple stories. The one big set piece battle or area with just a whole lot of jokes and innuendos and just silliness to fill the time around what should be like a really half hour combat spread out over two hours. Right. It's, right. I, I like a good sex joke. Mm-hmm. I'm not the target audience either. You know who is the target <laughs> audience? My wife. Oddly <laughs> enough. It's, I've tried showing her a couple other actual play podcasts. She had no interest in Critical Role. She tolerated Titan's Grave. She just she actually really, really enjoys uh, Acquisitions Incorporated. So we watch the live, uh, the live stream ones regularly. And when oh, I said wow. that I was uh, watching it for this, she gave me kind of puppy eyes and stuck her lip and like, you're watching it without me? <laughs> and I just reiterated that I'm re-watching it. So yeah, <laughs> she just really likes the, uh, the raw jokes for some reason, so... To each their own, so I well, can't fault yeah. that. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, and you know, I think it it goes to show, right? Uh, there are all kinds of people in the world uh, who certainly will be uh, be watching this and and checking it out. And I think there's a lot of people who, because this piece, you know, this is an ongoing story over the years, um, who will check out the series because they want to, you know, be in the know by the time the next live play comes around. Um, so I think that's certainly a, a draw for people as well. And I do think to Chris's point and your point, Dave, about the heist, um, you do spend like the first three episodes or so just watching them plan this heist. Uh, and you're kind of like, oh, let's get to the heist. And then when you get to the heist, it's not really worth the three episode buildup. Um, so I, I certainly understand that. Uh, James Hake, uh, what did you think of Acquisitions, Inc., the series? Acquisitions, Inc. is something that I started on uh, when I went to PAX Prime, Penny Arcade Expo uh, in Seattle. And that was where I think I and maybe a lot of other people were introduced to D&D in front of a large audience. Because this was in this was in Ben Royal Hall, fits thousands of people, a full house there. And, you know, when I watched it live, it was a whole lot of fun. Chris Perkins is great at controlling a crowd. All of those guys are... Uh, Pretty darn good comics. The, the first episode I saw was with Will Wheaton. He was there, and his mm-hmm. character, AFL, ill-fated AFL. Um, <laughs> remember his name. Um, and, you know, that was a lot of fun. 
I don't know what I can say about Ak Inc. the series that everyone else has not said already. Um, but as we, I, I guess as we're transitioning into Force Gray, I want to say that Acquisitions Inc. and Force Gray are kind of a the two two hit punch to show the different sides of D and D. You know, Acquisitions Incorporated is this very silly beer and pretzely version of D and D, and it's it's a homebrew campaign where a bunch of really like old friends get together. It's it's like having friends from high school around uh, playing a game, and it, it really does feel like a game. It's almost nostalgic in that way, um, and th- that's really all I have to say about that. Uh, other than it, Ak Inc has its own issues in my mind, uh, just because of Scott Kurtz. Uh, I don't want to delve too deeply onto that, but there there was a lot of tension between him and Will. That's why Will Wheaton isn't on the show anymore. Uh, there, there's just some play style issues that were that rankle me about that particular cast. Though I, I love Patrick Rothfuss. Yes. I love him to death. I yeah, love his books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and whereas I, I guess to talk about the other side of D&D that I brought up earlier, Force Grey sets out to be this epic adventure with the express purpose of, you know, if not showcasing the upcoming D&D product, then showing people the let's make Lord of the Rings happen with your friends style of play. And that show definitely shows, um, unlike acquisitions, that the players there are actors, or, or more specifically, that they're really people who want to tell a story and less to screw around, with maybe the exception of Chris Hardwick, who, who likes to screw around. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I, I think that this is a, a great time to sort of transition into Force Gray then. And, uh, you know, I, I the one thing I will say about Acquisitions, Inc. is that uh, I have stuck with that one as well uh, for, you know, because we were doing this podcast, because I probably will watch the next live show and that it does definitely make me chuckle as well. I think right now we're sort of talking about it in comparison to force gray and everything. I think it's great that wizards of the coast is doing it. And I think it's great that there are lots of people watching it. Um, you know, whatever gets more people to play D and D I think if, if there are people though, who are getting turned off by it, that's not as great a thing. You know, um, we want as many people to, to join the hobby as can as, as, it will take, you know, as, as many as it can sustain and then some, um, so that we can really grow this thing. Uh, so, uh, you know, if, if that's happening, that is not good. Uh, but if there are people out there who are enjoying it, who it is bringing to D and D, that is a good thing. Uh, let's talk about force gray. Uh, James, you already hinted at it a little bit. Uh, why don't you, you kick us off with, uh, some more. Um, yeah, you mentioned, uh, Chris Hardwick is in it. Jonah Ray. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of other, uh, really great comedians and actors and stuff in this. Uh, what is it about force gray, uh, that you really like and find charming? And is there anything that you don't like? Uh, let's, let's say, Let's start with, uh, if there's one thing I don't like about the show, it's the name. It's, <laughs> the Force Gray does not mean anything to me. You know, it could, it could be, you know, code blue for anything, uh, for all I know. Um, for With all of these shows, like, with really great evocative names, like uh, Acquisitions Incorporated or Critical Role, those are killer. Um, Force Gray Giant Hunters sounds like a fantasy movie that came out in the 70s. Okay, whatever. <laughs> um, and that's not at all the style of show they're trying to make. You know, I've, if they wanted to be a, a cheesy 70s fantasy show, more power to them. But they're making something really, really cool. They're, they're doing 
something that's kind of got the advertising level of cursive uh, of uh, dice camera action and cursive Strahd, but it's as far as I know because uh, Storm King's Thunder hasn't hit shelves yet. We don't really know what's going on inside of it. Maybe you know something, but we don't, James. Um, with your work on Adventures League, uh, uh, maybe that, by the way. Um, Thanks. But beyond beyond that, it, it's it's a homebrew campaign, much like Acquisitions Inc. is, maybe with a bit more insight, a uh, bit of uh, guidance by Wizards of the Coast. But Matt Mercer is an incredible storyteller, and all of the people that he's gathered are incredible storytellers, and. I don't know. I, I don't really know what more to what more to say about it, other than the way that they fall into their characters is it's a benchmark for people who aspire to be good role players and good good team players because they all work together even when their personalities clash a lot. And everybody really wants to tell a great, fun story together. And I think Matt Mercer, uh, you know, it, it goes without saying, he does an excellent job of leading that ship, just like he does on Critical Role. Uh, so, yeah, Force Grey, Giant Hunters, not a great name for a series. Uh, I, <laughs> I totally agree with that as well. Uh, so, why don't we turn now to Dave Gibson. Dave, I know you're a big Critical Role fan. I know you are the one who recommended we do this podcast is Force Grey living up to your expectations? I think I expected a little more. It's it, <laughs> it's kind of funny. It's it's uh, everyone else has been so down on everything else and so up on Force Grey, and I just found Force Grey adequate. It was it was um, much better than the initial preview. I think everyone kind of gelled a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I find Chris Hardwick kind of distracting, and it's the the, uh, the name of his character, and it's, <laughs> he's doing a great Will Wheaton impression. I think that it really feels like he wasn't trying to, to make a fantasy character. Uh, I imagine the name Forest Gray is so they can do some like Forest Gray acronym now later on. It's changed the Forest Gray Vampire Slayers for the next series or right, right. what have you. Um, the production values are good. The editing is good. It just didn't gel with me that they were telling a good story. Because it felt like nothing happened in that first episode. They got introduced. They started the little quests. And then random encounter in the streets. Now it's, let me yeah. let me ask you a question. Then, do you think that if it had been longer, like an episode of Critical Role, um, do you think maybe you would have gotten more out of it? Do you think that maybe the less than half hour format for each episode is not enough for somebody like you who who watches a lot of actual play? It's I, I didn't really get a feel for that they were actually making a lot of progress. And some of that actually could also be Matt Mercer because he's an excellent kind of improvisational uh, DM. He's on critical role. He's very good at just letting the actors, the characters go, um, go wild and react to them and they'll set stuff up and they'll just go completely to the opposite direction. He was thinking, and he'll roll with it seamlessly. I'm not sure that works as well for kind of a tightly scripted show where there is kind of a, an end goal and it's there's a finite number of episodes. So uh, maybe they'll, it'll, he'll be steering them subtly to the right direction and it'll work out very nicely and seamlessly. But I, I think I'll see that more later on. That's a, kind of a long view of it. Mm-hmm. The first episode, uh, it's, 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 it's some special effects. That was neat. The appearance of the, uh, the battle mat. The, yeah, yeah, that was it, really was, cool. it was. It was cool, and also made me wish I had more disposable income. <laughs> but it's um, yeah, it's like the 
uh, dice camera action, and it really felt like the the characters weren't interplaying very much, which made a little bit more sense because the the characters were also just meeting each other as well, unlike dice camera action where they they were meant to have been adventuring together for some time. Sure, sure. When you're completely contrasting with Acquisitions Incorporated, where these guys have hung out like a uh, half dozen times. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you just really know each other socially. And so yeah, it is kind of old friends hanging together and you do to get that associative regression. This was very much more strangers kind of meeting up. So it almost had kind of a, a slight feel of almost organized play where you're getting together and you some people you kind of know, you've seen them a couple of times, but you don't necessarily feel incredibly comfortable with with each other yet. Yeah, and you can see the people who do know each other better have a little bit of a better interplay. It seems like, um, you know, uh, like like Chris Hardwick and uh, and Jonah Ray because they have a you know they do podcasts together all the time and they do comedy together like that. They seem to have a more comfortable interplay with one another than they do with the people they don't know as well, right? Um, yeah. So I, I you know I think that that is a good point. Uh, I think the second episode. Um, really picks up and and things get interesting and i think they even start to joke about chris hardwick's character and like uh and he starts to play off that you know i I, he becomes more of a formed character rather than just a nuisance uh which is a a really really good thing um so uh i i really enjoyed it but it is good to hear uh from a, a critical role fan with a different perspective um let's turn now to the one and only chris sneezak chris uh, you said on Dan with D&D that you did not think this was a show that was necessarily meant for veteran players, that it was really meant for people who maybe hadn't played D&D to bring them into the hobby. Uh, do you still think that? And uh, what do you think of Force Grey overall? Yes, I still think that. I think that's exactly what this show is for. Uh, okay, I think that this... I watched the first two episodes because that's all there is. There's only two episodes so far. I think this is better than the tabletop age show. Absolutely. Nice. Uh, I, I will go out and say that. I think uh, some of the things I, – I couldn't disagree with David Gibson more about <laughs> about this show. Uh, Mercer is I, – I don't listen to Critical Role. I don't watch Critical Role. So I'm not really familiar with Mercer as a game master until I started watching this. Mm-hmm. There are so many little things that he does because I watched the first episode twice that are – good GMing practices for new game masters. Like right off the bat, uh, Hardwick sort of does a disruptive thing and Mercer shuts him down. And then there's a point where uh, Ukatesh uh, Ambukar playing uh, Hitch, he uh, he asks to make a persuasion check and or, a, or intimidation check, one of those two checks. And Mercer's like, uh, yeah, you can do that. Just tell me how you do it. Like, those are things that most normal people, like people who have been playing for a long time, know. But uh, new game masters don't know how to handle that stuff usually until they run into it four or five times. But now you can see it in action. So this show is fantastic for that. And uh, even that first episode, if it felt a little slow, I thought it was a good introduction to the characters. And then there was even a thing with Hitch where the Zentarum show up. So now if the Zentarum never show up again in this show, that would be a problem to me because then that was a wasted encounter. But if they show up again later to cause trouble, then that's just foreshadowing something that will happen later. So that's actually quality storytelling. Uh, but we can't – we won't know that until the whole thing's done. Uh, the alley fight was well done. The camera work in the show is is excellent. They they use a lot of different shots. I mean, James, you're a filmmaker, so you know how that goes. Uh, like when they went to the fight scene, they were jumping the camera around a lot to make it feel frenetic. So that was a really clever move by the people who are working on the Nerdist and editing this thing down. 
Uh, I like uh, Emily with her gun. I thought that was a clever character. I mean, Mercer is just Mercer's got skills as an actor. We all know that. Uh, so, so he's leveraging those as much as he can. And I think, I think the people that are putting the show together are leveraging that as much as they can too. But his game mastering ability is quality. Like he is a, he is a, the best, he's better than Perkins as far as I'm concerned at, at running a table. This show was to me obviously modeled after that age tabletop show. I think it's just better. Like they're, they're implementing it better. And the second episode, now that we're really talking about that, they started using a little bit of music in the background. I thought that was a nice touch. Uh, and then it got really serious. Like I, I thought it was kind of a, a little bit of a lark at times, but you're right about the, uh, the, the hardware character. He comes off a little goofy at first, but then in that second episode, they show that he's just really naive about the world. And I think that's where we're going with that. And I think over the course of time, I hope that'll develop even more. And the brutality of the giants, uh, the innards hanging from the trees, the the all the the dead bodies pointing off into the woods in that second episode, uh, very good. I quite enjoy the show, and I'll be watching the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it is a very very well done show. I agree with you uh, when we're talking about camera work and and production value. Uh, you know, this one is a super shiny, way above the rest. Uh, they're shooting in, in the back room at Meltdown Comics, which is kind of made for podcasting and video stuff. And um, so it's really, really great to see that as well. And it's awesome to hear people's reactions to Matt Mercer, because I think that is a, a great, great part of this. And it is a great, uh, it was super smart of Wizards to sort of bring him in as well and bring him in the fold and say, we want to work with you, um, you know, because of all of the great stuff that he was doing with Critical Role. Uh, real quick, and we are going to get to Liz Tice because I really, really want to ask her about this. Um, but real quick, Dave, do you think that because you have been watching critical role that that is maybe why you were a little disappointed by force gray because you know uh chris just said i have not watched it but i really love force gray do you think that maybe your expectations were set higher uh, by critical role in some way hmm. i don't think so it's uh matt mercer did an awesome job in both situations and i think it's just um, i i've not seen the second episode i haven't gotten around to that yet i've I've been on vacation and family needs kept cut taking priority. So I'm behind on that. And I think having maybe seen the second episode might help cement it. The first episode just felt too short to get a feel for what's going on. Yeah, it might be that the long form, short form. A double length initial episode might have just been exactly what I needed. There you go. There you go. I have uh, one quick question. Does anybody know what happened to Brian Poussain? Uh, I've done a lot of Googling trying to figure this out. I know he was supposed to be a part of this, uh, and it appears he is not. Uh, James? Um, I'm, I don't know for, for certain. Maybe Liz also knows. But um, from what I've heard, he, he had a, a conflict. You know, he's a, he's a professional, and he, he just had something he needed to do. And so he didn't show up in the first uh, – filming session which is probably the first like five or six episodes but gotcha. he he will be around okay gotcha and i figured that was the case that he probably something came up you know he's an actor no 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 <laughs> hold on i need to set up liz tice for a second so okay. uh if you have not listened to uh the roundtable podcast uh where we talked about uh, the event that happened at Meltdown Comics, uh, Liz was on that podcast and we had a, a long talk about kind of the first 
preview session of Force Gray uh, and how maybe it, it seemed a little disjointed. It seemed like maybe the new players didn't really understand what they were doing at all. Here's what I want to know. Has your mind been changed by the series? It has. Want to say, though, that if it hadn't been for this episode, I probably wouldn't have watched. So it's a good thing, I guess, that I was on this show because I was proven <laughs> wrong. <laughs> um, I, As anyone who listened to, uh, I think it was Roundtable episode 122, found out, uh, I was <laughs> really, really concerned about two particular pe- people on the show. Um, I think... It was, what's her name, uh, Shelby, Shelby Farrow and Utkarsh, because they sort of just seemed like they didn't really care and want to be there. Um, and they, they, someone must have sat down with them and was like, listen, <laughs> you, you need to sort of effort into this and actually seem like you want to be here playing this game uh, because they, they seemed uh, engaged. It seemed Ukarsh was like actively trying to like get the rules right and play the game, and and Shelby was hilarious. I just I had so much fun that um, I had clicked on um, episode two and started watching it before I realized what I was doing. And I wonder a little bit if it were was one of those things because I agree with you. I think their their initial showing was not strong at all for the same reasons. Um, I wonder if it, it the difference was. When you're doing something in front of an audience and you don't really know what you're doing, right? You're going to try to impress the audience, go for a laugh. That's what you're there to do. Um, uh, so it's sort of the opposite of the problem that maybe the Penny Arcade crew has, the Acquisitions Inc. crew has. They're used to an audience. They're used to feeding off that energy. Um, whereas these people, in trying to maybe learn D&D and also having an audience watch them, you know, and the stigma that's attached to the game and feeling uncomfortable, like all that kind of stuff uh, may have made it a bad first experience. And then when they're just chilling in the room with the crew and Matt Mercer, it's a little easier to get immersed. We want to know what all of the listeners out there think. So please hit us up at facebook.com slash the Tome Show or leave us a comment in the show notes for this episode at thetomeshow.com. All right, let's roll that interview with Chris Harris about deep magic. Okay, everybody, now I am here with the one and only Chris Harris. Chris, welcome to the roundtable. How are you today? Good, good. Thank you. Good to be here. Give us a few of your your credits, some of the highlights that people may know you from. Well, let's see. Um, I got involved uh, with Cobalt Press originally when it was actually mostly called Open Design Mm -hmm. and uh, Cobalt Quarterly Magazine. Uh, was still going. And uh, I guess the first project I worked on was a, a book for Pathfinder called Northlands. Uh, it was called Northlands Roleplaying in Winter's Chill. And it's a, sort of a Norse-themed setting uh, book with a lot of mechanical things you can use from weather to environmental hazards, Viking magic, etc. And then since then, I've done almost everything, I think, except for uh, drawing pictures or um, layout. Um, I've done everything, editing, proofreading, adventure design, development, rule stuff, uh, kind of all over the place, really. And uh, let's see, the uh, the Cobalt Press uh, Advanced Races series, I worked on a lot of those. And uh, 
more recently, uh, there's there's about four or five things coming out that I can't talk about yet. Um, <laughs> I'm excited about. Um, I guess the big thing lately has been uh, the upcoming uh, film of Beasts, mm-hmm. which is out here, I believe, in August. Um, it's available for pre-order now, and that's going to be a big fifth edition book of mo- about 400 plus monsters. And I did conversion from Pathfinder for. I think maybe 200 of those. And then uh, there's a few originals I threw in there. Then the thing expanded beyond that and added another 200 monsters and some other really good people worked on that. It's got <laughs> Steve Winter editing. And, uh, I know a guy named Dan Dillon did a lot of work on it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And those are all people who are working with you on Deep Magic now. Uh, and Deep Magic, as we know, is a chapter by chapter release for fifth edition. Uh, it takes a book that, you know, uh, Kobold had put out for Pathfinder and for 13th Age. It's all these spells, new magic items, uh, new ways of doing magic, um, new subclasses, uh, and it's being brought into 5th edition D&D now. Uh, so, uh, so as we look to this, the latest chapter that has just been released, uh, and actually we're talking before it was released, is Rune Magic. Uh, and you uh, did the lion's share of the design work on this Rune Magic chapter, right? Yeah, yes. For 5th edition, yes. Some of it, actually, it's based on some pre-existing material in the Northlands book for Pathfinder um, that I believe I worked on that book, but not near as much of, of that part of that book. Uh, I believe that Dan Voice did the uh, the original Pathfinder version of Rune Magic, but it's been heavily altered for 5th edition. And, uh, and it, but it was a, a great little system to begin with for Pathfinder players. Um, but hopefully, uh, people enjoy it as much or more with fifth edition now. Um, it's kind of a, it's a neat little system. It's uh, very sort of, uh, modular. It's meant to be, uh, sort of a, like a mini magic system that you can weld onto existing things. Um, and you can in fact use it if you are not a, uh, a spellcasting character. Um, there are certain, uh, entry level things you have to have, like uh, say a wisdom score of a certain you know number to be able to make any use of it. But uh, it it should be quite a lot of fun for people, I think. And it, it, we worked pretty hard on making sure it wasn't going to overpower things. Um, yeah. So t- let's talk a little bit about how this works because we talked uh, about the clockwork magic last time Wolfgang and Steve came on the show, and you know that was a lot of new spells. Uh, three new subclasses for, you know, the warlock, the cleric, and the wizard. And, you know, it, it was, um, sort of the way you would expect to bring in a new form of magic. Rune magic, they said, totally different. You know, a lot of it's done through gaining feats and that kind of thing. Uh, why did you choose to do rune magic that way? What was the impetus behind that? Really, um, and, and a good chunk of that. And the idea behind that was entirely mechanical, which was uh, figuring out a way to gatekeep it so you wouldn't have, say, a, a first level character right off the bat having, you know, these extra abilities um, <laughs> and then just, you know, graft them on as you go there. We decided um, and there was a lot of discussion about it to gatekeep them sort of with feats. And you're basically you, you could first gain access to rune magic at fourth level. Um, and that will give you uh, basically mastery over two particular runes. And each rune 
will come with certain abilities or bonuses or maybe even a you know a once a day spell or something along those lines and uh then the next time you'd be able to uh bump that up or or make more use of it would be four levels later when you have access to another uh feat and trying to balance that out with you know somebody's going to have to uh forego an ability score bonus at that at that uh every four level juncture. Um, so you have to make it worth it, but not too crazy. And um, so four levels later, you can take another feat called uh, it's deeper rune lore. And you can, of the two runes that you have mastered, one of those runes, basically you can apply this feat to and learn sort of open a whole new list of things you can do as you advance in level. Um, now it's not like you, you get a whole new spell list or something like that. Sure. Trying to think of a, let's see, a good example that's also succinct, like say, read one of these out to you. I don't know if that would be useful. Um, Yeah, let's do it. For the, uh, a rune that I'm probably going to butcher the spelling of, um, I mean, the uh, pronunciation, the Ingvas, I-N-G-W-A-Z. The meaning of the rune is it's, uh. It's applied. It symbolizes your ancestors, Northmen, or uh, the god Odin. And uh, when you get that rune mastery bonus feat, you gain proficiency on intelligence history checks. And then at fourth level, straight out of the gate, you also uh, can invoke this rune on a spear. And when it's invoked, it basically invokes uh, divine favor from the Acer for the first character who throws it over the head of enemies. consisting of nine or more opponents. Um, let's see, that invokes in one hour, lasts for a minute. Then at fifth level, you can uh, invoke it on the face of a willing creature, and it turns the creature into a berserker, granting it the benefits of barbarian rage, etc., uh, for a couple of rounds. Then, say, eighth level, you take deeper rune lore and apply it to that particular rune. Um, let's see, you could, at eighth level, invoke that on the nails and flesh of a corpse, and it will act as a speak with dead spell. Let's see, a concentration up to 10 minutes. So that's one example of uh, how they work. The other thing was certainly with the, when we were doing the Northlands book, we were all, I think, at home, you know, speed reading through sagas and, <laughs> and horse mythology. And, you know, apparently there was a whole lot of people listening to uh, Led Zeppelin's uh, Immigrant Song and <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> But uh, one of the things, you know, obviously with the runes is hanging upside down the tree of knowledge, you know, that Odin had to do in order to gain mastery of runes, etc. Of um, course, yeah. Or to be, you know, not something, unless you were a, a dedicated, you know, you can build a character completely around this by every four levels you say instead of taking deeper rune lore you grab another two runes and you can do deeper rune lore on those at 12th level um etc so you can focus that way Mm -hmm. but doing so won't give you such an overpowered you know uh guy doing two or three jobs type character so much as your focus would change from that primary job and the things you could be doing with those other feats towards this. So it sounds like, you know, these are used to enhance and, and that the inspiration for them is what you're kind of trying to remain true to, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. So you, yeah, exactly. You don't have to be of a spellcasting class um, to make use of these. Um, and, uh, and since they really, I mean, 
that to some degree that also uh came out a lot of the the reading we all i think did of uh of the uh, norse the actual norse cultures and whatnot and that not having so much a a guy whose full-time job was you know he's the priest or whatnot no you're gonna earn a living you know <laughs> right right yeah, yeah, which makes it awesome. Uh, you know, it's it's this idea of these, you know, really, really amazing warriors then who can, you know, cast speak with dead or turn someone into a berserker. It does feel really Norse in its nature and is so different from the clockwork chapter. You know, Wolfgang described that as Doctor Who. Like, there was a lot of chronomancy, a lot of machines, and, and that kind of thing. So, we get to see uh, a, a lot of feats in this chapter. Uh, what else do we see? Let's see. We're going to, there's going to also be several magic items. And, uh, let's see. We, there's a, at least, and now I, I wish I had the thing right in front of me, there is a, at least one condition, an environmental condition added that ties into uh, quite a lot of these things. Or, well, or really, so like a new, like blinded, deafened, that kind of condition. Exactly. They're, well, it's snow blindness uh, is the one that's coming to mind. Um, cool. Which uh, ties into a lot of things with the uh, adventuring up in the frozen north, etc. Um, oh, yeah. And there's I believe, a couple of spells. There's uh, the very, very heavily uh, Viking influenced magic items. Uh, Oh, the kneeling pole is one of my favorite things. Um, it's a, a wooden staff that's topped with a horse skull and uh, mm -hmm. with a horse cloak thrown over it. And it's carved all over with, uh, with runic curses and, uh, and the victim's, the intended victim's name. And uh, basically calls them a coward, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, what you do, it's meant to punish a crime. And it only functions one time. You go out and stake it into the ground and uh, whenever the intended comes within a certain range of it, and I think it was something like 333 feet, it attempts to cast Bestow Curse on the target. And uh, let's see, what else did that oh, do? Oh, that's cool. That's really, really cool. Yeah, it goes on from there until uh, let's see, I believe he has to uh, basically do perform some sort of an act to uh, to throw that off, like face up to his punishment, basically. Um, and then uh, I'm hoping there may be a few other things we get squeezed in there. Um, some other items. Uh, there's another thing that was a, a basically the coward's shield, which I, is one of my favorite things from Pathfinder Cobalt Press, which is a, a shield that you, you basically shout a, uh, a Norse word for coward and hold this thing up and run away. Um, and it gives you a really good defensive bonus as you're escaping, but, uh, <laughs> but you have to loudly declare yourself basically a chicken and run away. Uh, <laughs> weird little sense of humor things that, that they seem to engage in. Um, so yeah, let's see what else is going into that. As far as I know, there's obviously the feats. There's a, a feat that opens these up for uh, monster use. It's not necessarily a feat, but a, trying to remember the term now uh not an ability a trait a oh, monster gotcha. <laughs> losing my lingo here that uh opens up these things for monsters that have a sort of that have that flavor to them uh like in the upcoming tome of beasts there's a type of giant the uh thurser giant yeah they're you know the smiths they're uh they're not exactly friendly and um 
let's see, those guys have uh, sort of a born, you know, in the blood attachment to a particular rune, um, things like that, uh, that you can graft on the monsters. So hopefully this will be something really useful in a modular way for people. If they, if they want to have a, a big Viking campaign, that this would be something they could get a lot of use out of. Right, right. Yeah, which, is, I mean, that is one of the great things about this sort of chapter-by-chapter chapter release, um, you know, is is you can pick and choose what you really want at your table, or if your DM is allowing it, you know, only a, a single chapter, you only need to pick up the one chapter. So the modularity of this is really, really incredible. Uh, what challenges did you have when you were converting stuff from Pathfinder to 5th edition d and Oh, man, let's see. Uh, probably the biggest one was uh, these things were being... Uh, I was working on these pretty much right after the uh, the Dungeon Master's Guide came out for 5th edition. There was a lot of scrambling back and forth uh, and uh, a lot of emails back and forth between me and Wolfgang, certainly worrying over, you know, is, is this the correct way to introduce these? Like, how do we open this door up without, you know, standing right on your face? So there was quite a bit of that. I think, uh, really, it was the uh, the series of decisions that wound up using feats as mm-hmm. the uh, as the doorway to it, because obviously, like in fifth edition, they don't make there's not the the giant emphasis on feats um, that there is, say, in Pathfinder. You can kind of forego them all together if you wanted to. They're presented as an optional sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. This way. And probably, I'm guessing, a whole lot of players out there will forego them in favor of the uh, the other option, which is the ability score bonus. But that made this a little more made this make a lot more sense to go that route because there is no class that winds up with you know a, a, a you know a giant shopping cart full of feats that you know. So that was definitely the key thing I think was figuring out how to introduce them. A lot of the abilities and so forth that written into them were already a little bit off the map um, from usual Pathfinder uh, spell stuff. Um, of course, yeah. They were kind of their own little creatures. So that translated pretty well. Um, but really, yeah, it would be the it would be the using feats to access them that was the big sort of back and forth decision to be made on that. Um, and really, though, it was, I had a blast working on this stuff because it just, you know, you get into the, or I certainly do, I'll get into that little headspace where, you know, my, my, you know, my desktop screen is a, you know, frozen wasteland and, you know, stuff no, right. like that. And the music I listen to changes a little bit. And, um, so uh, it's, I've always enjoyed working on that particular kind of flavor. Um, so I was able to jump right into that one and have fun with it. That's um, awesome. I hope everybody likes it, certainly. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then the, the things that I can't talk about that will be coming out. <laughs> I keep having to stop myself on that. I don't want to mention things again. Yeah. Well, we um, will definitely uh, – we'll, we'll bring you back to, uh, to talk about those. But for now, people should definitely check out – Rune Magic. It is part of Deep Magic being released by Cobalt Press. There's a direct link over to the product in the show notes for this episode at thetomeshow.com. The man, the myth, the legend is Chris Harris. Chris, if people want to reach out to you on the internet or find other things you're doing, where can they go and what should they do? 
Uh, let's see. Most of the things I've worked on can be found on the Cobalt Press website at coboldpress.com. And uh, let's see. Uh, I have, you know, I have a website. I need to, uh, I need to go in and retool. I haven't updated the thing in about a year. Uh, <laughs> I'm on Google Plus. Um, and uh, let's see. I'm certainly on Facebook. Um, I, I have not uh, tweeted yet. I may. <laughs> break down and do that soon. I seem to be missing like the half of a lot of conversations and, uh, but yeah, Cobalt Press is, is, it has been home to me for about the past six years. I'm a, a definite Cobalt minion over there and, uh, and I can certainly be found there easily. So, uh, and, uh, let's see more recently, actually I've been, uh, I just, uh, took over a job for adventure a week and I'm basically heading the uh, the conversion of a lot of their their backlog of Pathfinder adventures over to fifth edition now. Um, so there's a a lot of material coming down the pike that way with the little team of converters we've got over there. Uh, so I can be found there as well. Um, yeah, I'm around. So <laughs> and then down here in Phoenix, and you know if you knock over a hot rock, I'll probably be under it. <laughs> excellent excellent well thank you so much for joining me on the round table today chris thanks for having me well i think that is going to do it for this episode of the round table dave gibson where can people find you uh, you can find my stuff over on the dms guild which i'm going to pimp out horribly because i love doing it and it's great sharing it it's uh, actually i'm actually just being pirated right now i discovered my stuff's so good that people actually want to steal it it's Huh. Both an honor and horrible at the same time. <laughs> well, congratulations and my deepest apologies uh, for that. Uh, so um, you are this week's DMs Guild pick of the episode <laughs> as well, uh, just so you know. Wow. Um, cool. So your Beastmaster companion is uh, is this week's pick of the episode. Uh, okay. So yeah, so yeah, check out Dave's stuff. Uh, five minute workday, right? Is uh, yep. is what they can search for. MWD dot com and uh, Twitter at DND Jester. Excellent, excellent. And uh, James Hake, where can people find you? Oh my gosh, I don't want to over-advertise myself today, but mm-hmm. I, I, you can find me at Twitter on uh, James J. Hake. That's my Twitter handle. Um, I'm the editor for N-World Insider, which is a, a fifth edition Patreon magazine, basically. I write some things over at Geek and & Sundry. And um, at 1 p.m. on... Uh, July 31st, that's next Sunday, I'm actually going to be on the Encounter Roleplay uh, Twitch stream doing a little interview about some of the stuff I've done for Kobold Press recently. I'm going to be talking about the Gem Dragons of Faerun monster book that I wrote, which has just gone into print-on-demand. Very excited about that. And about um, Heritage of Heroes, a Kobold Press feature I did just last month. Sir, that is awesome. I can't wait to check that out. That's excellent. Excellent. Uh, and uh, Chris Sneezak, where can people find you? Well, you can find me and my fellow gnomes over at the Gnome Stew. Uh, you can find the stuff that we're working on over at encodedesigns.com. And you can find the podcasts at misdirectedmark.com. Uh, on Twitter, at misdirectedmark. On G+, Chris Sneezak. On Facebook, the Misdirected Mark Group. There you go. Well, uh, it is lovely to have you here, Sarah, and hopefully we will definitely have you back soon. Uh, And Liz Tice, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter at 
Liz the is. That's how you spell my name, Liz Tice. And um, I'll also be at Gen Con at the Tome Show uh, live recording uh, on, uh, what is it, Friday? Yeah, Friday um, at uh, 5 o'clock from 5 to yeah. 6.30. So, so come to that if you're going to be at Gen Con. Um, but that's where you can find me. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the roundtable today. And before we go, each week we highlight a new product in our DMs Guild pick of the episode. This week's highlighted DMs Guild product comes from our very own David Gibson. That's right. The same dude who was on this podcast. He makes awesome stuff. This week's pick is called 5-Minute Workday Presents The Beastmaster Companion. This product includes expanded options for the Beastmaster archetype, supporting and not replacing the option in the player's handbook. Included are over a dozen new animals available for use as Beast Companions, including a bear, alligator, gorilla, and Dionysus. That's right, that's what dinosaur people check it out. Five new feats let you use your beast in different ways. Train your companion to guard you and your allies, or to scout ahead. Five Minute Workday presents the Beastmaster's Companion is only 50 cents, and that is a steal. Go check it out right now. There is a direct link over to it in the show notes for this episode at thetomeshow.com. Thanks to my panelists, Dave, Liz, James, and Chris, and to my guest, Chris Harris. All right, everyone, you can find me on Twitter at James Intercasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Also, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the fifth edition D&D world that I'm building over at worldbuilderblog.me. It's in any nominated blog. I'm so excited. There's tons of free resources for your D&D 5e games over there. I'm talking spells, creatures, magic items, variant rules, diseases, traps, you name it, we got it. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening. Special thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music, which you are listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. And hey, if you like the show, please rate the Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.